Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. So your autonomic nervous system mind basically fluctuates between states of energy, arousal, activation, and the secondary or the other setting of inhibition, deactivating, limiting energy and alertness. So those are the two broad settings, things that amp us up, mobilize us, get us ready to survive, and those settings that essentially wind us down, deactivate us, soothe, settle. The the sympathetic nervous system is the branch of your nervous system that is associated with uh, arousal, alertness, taking an action, mobilizing so that you can survive a difficult situation. Uh, When we have, it, it plays a very fundamentally good role in human life, the ability to go out and our species history, hunt for food, which was very, very dangerous. It was the time that you could be killed. Uh, Required you to have a sympathetic nervous system that would uh, produce uh, neurotransmitters that made you feel very powerful, like adrenaline. Also reward, dopamine. Uh, It's uh, any sexual excitement, any time you play a game, any time you exercise, any time you do anything that requires exertion or activity, you are moving your autonomic system uh, setting to uh, sympathetic, to arousal. Of course, if you stay too long in the sympathetic nervous system, you eventually run out of adrenaline and dopamine, and then you start releasing uh, your hypothalamus triggers the release of from your adrenal glands of uh, cortisol which is a stress hormone that's very actually bad for us when it's released for any period of time when we are in prolonged states of stress which means we're constantly alert we're constantly vigilant constantly uh, in a state of active Uh, engagement with something where we don't have any time to relax people in stressful jobs people who have a lot of responsibilities that and obligations that are essentially uh, triggering them constantly the we run out of the dopamine reward the adrenaline and we live entirely on cortisol which is exceedingly unhealthy it causes arterial sclerosis heart damage, kidney damage, liver damage, it's aging, it fucks with your nervous system because it stops the production of white blood cells and T cells. So if you have any kind of chronic disease, chronic stress is a significant enemy. So the key is it's fine to have your sympathetic nervous system activated for a short time, but 
if you have it activated for any length of time, it's going to start uh, essentially uh, compromising your physiological uh, condition, well-being. And additionally, when you're in your sympathetic nervous system, you're you stop digesting food. Your the muscles around your abdomen clench, sending the blood to your limbs because your brain fully believes you have to do something physical to survive, and it's producing red blood cells because it thinks you might be attached and injured. That's why it doesn't bother to produce any white blood cells which fight uh, viruses. So the other side is the parasympathetic, which is deactivating, which uh, switches us out of arousal and allows us to digest, allows us to rest, get sleep. It too can have positive and negative uh, ramifications. If you stay in what's the, called the ventral parasympathetic, which is the parasympathetic is a works with a cluster of nerves that run down the front of your body, your face, and your chest. If you're in a state where you're using the higher parasympathetic, which is an evolutionarily modern invention, you can talk, you can work through problems, you can think outside of the box, you can be rational, you can interact with people in a positive way, you can exchange uh, emotions in a safe way, and you'll be using your facial muscles to express uh, your emotions. So that you'll find all of the physical qualities of any emotional state when you're in, or any state of being in ventral parasympathetic, the higher state, you'll be using your face and you'll feel the emotions on using the, the cranial muscles. But there's also a secondary part of the parasympathetic, which is the dorsal, which runs down your body. And that's associated with some very old and very uh, negative effects of uh, essentially deactivating oneself. When somebody is in a state of shock, when they are uh, uh, dissociative, depersonalization, when they are in a state of depression, when they are completely in one of those states of brain fog where they can't get out of bed, they can't, uh, they have no energy, no dopamine to, to live, they're in the old parasympathetic state. They're in the shutdown state. And uh, that is um, a very uh, difficult set of state of the nervous system to get out of. It's very difficult to think anything positive. Our memory structures largely start to switch off. The narrative structures in the brain start to switch off so we don't recall anything positive. We can't bring to mind any rewards. It's very difficult to motivate oneself. And so there's, of course, significant setbacks to being in the, that sort of old parasympathetic state. So there's different neurotransmitters for both the sympathetic arousal and the parasympathetic downshift. The rewards in the sympathetic, once again, are adrenaline, 
and our uh, dopamine uh, base. The uh, if you stay too long, you'll be using cortisol, which is, of course is we talked about that stress hormone. If you are in the parasympathetic, the uh, you will use um, serotonin, which is a inhibitor. It allows you to relax, to feel settled, to feel connected with people. It will switch off obsessive thinking, which is why so many adults uh, are put on selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, antidepressants. Keep your serotonin levels high, which allows us to essentially switch off obsessive ideations. Um, also associated with the parasympathetic is uh, GABA. Uh, it activates GABA and uh, acetylcholine, which allows us to move our attention. Uh, it also, though, if you're in a state of shock, very often will flood with endorphins, which will essentially put you in an opiated state. Um, but it also can release opiates and endogenous opiates when you're in the higher setting. So the goal of being a human being is to have what's called homeostasis. You don't stay too long in mobilize, aroused, active, nor do you stay too long in essentially downshifted, deactivated, rest and digest. We move back and forth fluidly depending upon our state of health and also we'll find out our state of connection with others. If, we, the, if people have what's called secure attachment, which is early on an experience of being safe with our caregivers, being understood, being uh, prized by the adults when we were in childhood, then our nervous systems are essentially set to fluctuate very nicely. Well, how is it set? Well, there's a part of your brain called your right amygdala. It's completely unconscious. It's a subcortical region of the limbic structure. And it's, the, its primary job is to switch you from states of activation, defense, mobilization. I have to do something right now to states of I can relax, I can settle in, I'm safe to even uh, more shutdown states of there's no point, I'm overwhelmed, I'm not safe, I have to shut down, dissociate, check out, you know, essentially disconnect from everything in my life. So all of those decisions are not being made consciously and there's no way you can consciously choose, okay, right now I'm too anxious, I'm just gonna switch myself to the parasympathetic, that'll be great, it's like, we don't have in the brain the conscious, the part of the brain that switches us from fourth gear to first gear is not conscious. It's being done entirely unconsciously by a region of the brain you have no control over. And unfortunately for many of us, myself included, though the setting of the right amygdala that makes those decisions, right now I feel safe, I can stay in parasympathetic, or right now I feel under threat or I need to get things done because I'm not gonna be taken care of so I have to go into my sympathetic arousal state or now I'm completely unsafe in the world, nobody's on my side, I need to shut down entirely. 
Those decisions are being made by a very ancient structure of the brain that was largely set. Its settings were established in early childhood, your first two, three years of life. And it's constantly looking for what's called safety cues and threat cues to make that determination. So we'll talk a little bit about how we can essentially speak to our amygdala and get it to switch our nervous systems so that we're less stressed out. Or if we need to be more active and more alert and we're feeling disengaged or tired or worn out, how we can do that as well. Before we get to that, uh, this concern has been around for a very long time. In the, in the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings, there's all these lists. If you've ever studied even the early, littlest bit of Buddhism, there's list after list after list after list. And they're very difficult to memorize. And many people find them very confusing. But if we look at them pretty closely, we see that in every list, the Buddha is balancing how to energize and keep us in a state of alertness and readiness to engage in life but also giving us tools to deactivate and to wind down in a skillful way he also gives us lists of like how states of activation and states of uh, deactivation can be harmful there's one list called uh, hindrances and there are five there are five and the buddha says that in that the common uh, the common factors that keep us too stressed out too active too alert too hypervigilant are essentially seeking craving addicted to things that bring us fast sensual pleasure hatred and ill will you know, towards other people, people and uh, situations that are triggering, and um, also self-doubt plays a significant role. There's, uh, on the other hand, there's uh, there's lethargy and apathy that are de-arousing that shut us down. So there's also positive examples in the seven factors of awakening bhajana the buddha says that uh putting learning how to enjoy life learning how to experience what he calls rapture pity is an exceedingly skillful way to use our sympathetic nervous system which means literally drinking in the things that we do are well our times of connection the when we bond with others he talks about using the mind to analyze uh, behaviors and situations we get ourselves into that are either skillful or unskillful, and that's what he considers to be a very useful way of thinking and staying alert. There's putting effort into any task that we consider to be a benefit to ourselves or others. Um, um, to balance with that, he talks about using meditation uh, to create states of serenity as a way to deactivate us and developing mindfulness and equanimity. So, again, this is a big concern to him. In contemporary psychology, 
the works of people that I really admire from Pat Ogden, Van Siegel on, um, it's well understood that defense mechanisms are always sorted into uh, defenses that essentially pump us up, that put us into hypervigilance, that put us into a state of alert, versus defense mechanisms that essentially overly soothe, overly deactivate us and make us essentially check out. So um, excitery defense mechanisms are deflecting. What we'll do is people with jobs will where they feel abused or mistreated will essentially repress for a short time their anger uh, at people in power above them and then they'll take that anger out on people around them. So they'll deflect and vent the anger onto others. Converting, converting affects is another where we take an emotional state that we don't feel safe in and we convert it to an emotional state that we feel safer and more in control. So very, for instance, men, a lot of men have feel very vulnerable ever allowing themselves to feel sad after they've been through a breakup or after they've been through uh, a conflict with peers and will start to feel, to, to essentially replace their sadness with anger. And it, it essentially converts the emotion to an emotion where we feel not more in control and we don't feel as vulnerable around other men. So there's this need to not, in other words, process the emotion, process the experience, but to convert it to an excitatory state where we feel in control. Uh, projection is another, where we take the parts of ourselves that we don't like and project them onto other people. So, for instance, um, uh, I'm totally guilty of this. There are parts of myself that I don't like, and I project them always onto Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> Trump, I'm like, you know, this guy is, you know, not only is a racist and a Nazi and a dipshit, but he's, you know, probably, you know, has these other attributes, which are attributes in myself that I don't like. And so how convenient, but to then take these attributes and project it onto this loathsome character. And so that's exciting. Um, <laughs> I've actually, every month, because the, the podcasts have somehow gotten slightly popular and every month or two I'll get an email saying I used to love your podcast <laughs> but you started slagging off Trump and as a proud Trump supporter I'm like how did you ever listen to me <laughs> what did you ever find in this neurotic Jewish Buddhist guy blathering on about psychology what did you think you know did you I, did you think I was voting for Mussolini I mean, I mean come on anyway so um, so uh, on the other hand there's defense mechanisms that deactivate us for instance a conflict avoidance where we navigate around people that where there's uh, unresolved tension 
or where we have to go through difficult conversations and so we avoid making eye contact, avoid walking in a place where there'll be. There's also minimizing when we've been through a painful event and somebody asks, how you do? How are you doing? And we say, oh, it's fine, it's fine. And then we suppress awareness of the affects and we push it away. Passive aggressive behaviors are essentially down regulating. We feel really angry, but we don't want to allow ourselves to shift up into a fully uh, mobilized state. So we let the anger out, but in a way that doesn't shift us out of the parasympathetic state. <clears throat> Substance abuse, drug, alcohol. Uh, people choose substances based on the settings in their nervous system that made them feel safest in their childhood to survive. So in my case, um, there was, uh, I, had a, I had both, my, <clears throat> my father was a violent alcoholic, so times I would check out uh, as a way of just getting completely dis out of contact with my body to feel safe and to be able to fall asleep, but at other times I had to be able to stay, maintain alertness. So I gravitated when I was using, up until 25 years ago, I would use a lot of stimulants, cocaine uh, uh, was available r rampantly at the time, lots of alcohol, lots of downers, uh, I even used heroin. So I used everything that and would recreate the settings of my nervous system that I used to survive my family system. A lot of people gravitate towards opiates and alcohol who have abuse in their background and the only way they could survive is, was like by literally checking out, dissociating, depersonalizing, derealizing, so they, derealization, so they would literally go into this very remote, uh, checked out, place where they would be unaware of current stimuli and so opiates and alcohol can recreate that in adult life. On the other hand, people who survived their childhoods by constantly being on alert, they had to remain anxious to survive and know when their, their parents would become unavailable or unreliable. Very often use cocaine or speed as a way to navigate adult relationships. Um, attachment. The way we bond, how comfortable we feel in relationships, has everything to do with the settings of the nervous system. When people have secure attachment, we know from the works of Shore and Siegel, and um, I had a whole list of, of uh, but, uh, oh, Mario McEwlinser, Philip Shaver, uh, Arlene Montgomery, so I'm just bringing up some clinical neuropsychologists on the top of my head, but um, depending upon whether we have, um, we had secure attachment, if we did, we will tend to be in homeostasis flow between the two states. We'll be able to fluidly 
move back and forth between states of alert when we need it, states of rest and digest. We'll be able to do it in a very predictable way. And so our nervous system will never stay too long in any one setting. It will be able to rest and digest, but will also be able to motivate us ourselves to get things done in the world. Those who decreased their state of alertness, checked out to uh, survive, uh, who essentially tend towards parasympathetic, are, have avoided attachment. They tend to uh, be very remote, clinical, logical in relationships. They don't tend to want to use their emotions to connect with other people. They tend to struggle with em empathy and, imp and uh, intimacy. Uh, when you take it to the extreme, people who uh, are avoidant and tend to stay constantly in parasympathetic or deactivated can wind up as narcissists. Narcissists have, are very often stay for a long period of time in this shut down, emotionally disconnected, left brain state where they have very little subcortical awareness, very little empathy, and they make up, they compensate for their lack of empathy and intimacy by essentially uh, creating an egoic structure which feeds off of attention and approval and they need it constantly because they're not actually getting the things that human beings really need to survive, which is emotional connection. On the other hand, those who uh, increase their state of arousal to survive, they learned that the only way they could get their needs met in childhood was by staying constantly on alert, monitoring the facial expressions of their mother or father. They needed to constantly stay vigilant to be safe those people wind up with anxious attachment, and in the extreme, there's borderline personality disorder, which are people who gravitate towards conflict in important relationships and see people in terms of black or white. If your nervous system bounces back and forth between arousal and shutdown completely unpredictably, you have what's called disorganized attachment, which means there was a trauma in an early developmental point of your life that has left you with a nervous system that cannot regulate itself any longer. And so there's no predicting whether you will shut down or become anxious or become essentially uh, emotionally disengaged. So the work of Masterson, Kernberg, a great neuropsychologist, Gilead, shows that in adult life, the most important way to maintain homeostasis is by finding secure connections with people that are emotionally available. What that means is the words that we say to each other do not play any role in regulating, co-regulating another person's nervous system. If somebody's really anxious and they come to you trying to calm them down by saying reassuring things will not help at all because the amygdala, which is keeping them in activation states, does not understand language. However, your right amygdala does understand when people maintain eye contact, when they give you a soft expression, when they empathize or mirror with your emotions. 
when they essentially create a stable distance, when they essentially create the ideal caregiver role with you. In childhood, our nervous system and the right amygdala was set not by language, but by a mother and a father, the way they would engage with the infant, or two mothers or two fathers, whatever, would engage with the infant, whether it would be maintain a soothing regard or whether the parent would be suddenly consciously anxious or angry or completely just distracted and uninterested in the child. Wherever the child did not get a ongoing constant being seen in the eyes of the other, that would set their amygdalas into, I cannot stay in homeostasis. I have to either become hypervigilant or I need to stay in parasympathetic and check out. Being fluid, having a nervous system that can allow you to get things done in your life, but also be able to relax when you need to relax, to be able to self-soothe, requires that you have constant ongoing interactions with people where you disclose your emotions visibly to them and they sit and just take you in. And in that nonverbal exchange, which is known as right brain to right brain, we develop what's called limbic co-regulation. We downshift each other into a state of deactivation. We pull each other out of stress. There is no way to get out of chronic stress unless we have skillful people in our lives. There's no faster way to deactivate or dysregulate, I should say, somebody than to put them into a state of emotional isolation where there are people around them, but they have no resonant intimate, intimate connections with others. So um, there is, however, uh, and if you do, even if you had a terrible childhood, and you're set to constantly be anxious or constantly be depressed and shut down, if you do wind up in a good support group or with a good therapist or in a relationship with somebody who's secure and caring, you will eventually, Mary Main's research, it takes about five years to develop the neural circuits that will essentially either use the left brain to shut down the right brain's overactivation or the right brain to speak to the left, or you essentially change the setting of the amygdala to keep yourself in a more fluid, homeostatic state. Now fortunately, if you do have, um, if you do have people in your life that can help, but no matter how often people are around, there's times where we're gonna be alone, where we're not gonna be around people who can help essentially regulate our nervous systems and can help if we're too anxious to, to, to modulate us to a state of uh, homeostasis or fluid back and forth. There's a practice called mindfulness. And mindfulness is an ancient Buddhist tool. It's about 2,500 years old. And it's been shown now in numerous clinical studies to be an excellent partner in essentially learning to reset our settings. Mindfulness works by being able to sit with 
sensations and first or an experience and not react either by becoming anxious or vigilant or by becoming shut down and the way we do this is we start small we don't just immediately throw ourselves into a stressful situation at work or uh, in a conflict with a loved one we actually practice using very basic body feelings and learn how to be with our internal states and learn how to be with them in such a way that we uh, don't react, that we can just be with the experience. And already we're showing our amygdala that it can stay with more, ex more uh, external stimuli without switching us either into arousal or to shut down. But then the second thing that can happen with mindfulness that's really skillful that the Buddha talked about is we can actually also begin to adjust the, our uh, areas in the body that speak to our amygdala so that if we are too anxious, we can downshift. And if we are too depressed and shut down, we can upregulate ourselves. So in this meditation and mindfulness, we're going to be working with the two primary, for me, foundations of mindfulness. The first is with the breath, and the second is with energy moving through the body. We're going to be working with both as a way to first determine whether we are in a state of homeostasis or whether we are in a state of arousal or when we are a state of uh, uh, deactivation and then we're going to learn how to change our settings how to speak to our amygdala through the body and then we're going to practice by bringing up uh, a challenging event for our life either something that triggers anxiety or triggers a sense of just wanting to just make it all go away and we're going to use these tools to up or down regulate ourselves. So thank you for listening. I hope that that was in some way interesting. And uh, we're now going to put it all in practice. So find a comfortable seated position. If any of you have bad backs and want to use the wall to lean up again, feel free. Some people, obviously, it could be pretty painful if you don't have support. So uh, feel free to come up and use the spaces uh, so that you have support. And um, yeah, there's another room for somebody here if you want. And uh, so the first thing is just to close the eyes and you don't need to worry about the shape of your spinal cord as uh, Ajahn Suchito teaches but the most important setting for him a great Buddhist monk is to keep your head balanced directly atop your pelvis or your sit bones so we don't want our head to be too behind our pelvis or in front of it. We want it to be directly above. And then what we want to do is just make sure that the top of our head is parallel to the floor, that we're not tilting forward, 
so that we're not tucking our chin into our neck. You don't want to allow your head to uh, slouch in front of your chest, and it kind of undoes all the good work that your meditation is. So for me, I always uh, put a little bit of effort into tilting my head up like I'm looking at a very tall building just to counteract that tendency of the head to slouch forward. And don't try to push yourself in any posture, just allow your body to do the work for you. You want your right brain to feel your way into good posture, not your left. So let's just start by uh, landing in this moment of time. If you can, bring to mind a place in the world where you feel really safe, a place where you give yourself permission to relax and unwind, a place where you you go and you give yourself permission to put aside all the unresolved business in your life, even if you're in a challenging dynamic back home when you get to this spot. It might be on the beach or a place in a park by a body of water. Maybe there's like a a favorite place you go. And when you get there, when you arrive, you don't have any desire to get caught up in all the preoccupying, repetitive thoughts about worries or stressors back home. You get to that spot on the beach where you put down the beach towel and you feel the sun, the sound of the waves, and every single issue in life just feels very far away. And one of the ways we move into that state of disengagement, but alertness, the higher parasympathetic settings, as we, when we get to that place, we feel safe, we start relaxing unconsciously all the muscles. So we soften the muscles in the neck, the muscles in the shoulders, the muscles in the lower back. Pull the shoulders slightly back to open up your chest and that sends a message up to your right amygdala that says I'm I'm not under any danger right now I can just relax right now 
softening the micro muscles around the eyes and encouraging your eyes to settle behind your eyelids. So imagine your, your eye sockets have two pools of warm water and your eyes now can just float in those pools. They don't need to move anymore. They just can float in these pools and disengage from any need to move back and forth, up and down. So I'd like you to bring your awareness to your breath and become aware of the length of your in-breath and the length of your out-breath. Does your in-breath feel more, does it have a greater duration? Does it feel like there's more emphasis on the in-breath than the out, or vice versa? Does the out-breath feel longer? When all the emphasis is on the in-breath, we are in sympathetic state of arousal, attention, to maintain a mobilized state. We have to constantly bring in more oxygen. And inhalation is associated with activating the sympathetic nervous system. On the other hand, if your out-breath is much longer that you feel the emphasis, the duration is on the opera, then that is parasympathetic. It, your vagal vagus nerve releases acetylcholine and calms you down. If you're overly active, you'll find your mind won't settle. If you're overly deactivated, you find it very difficult to stay awake or even find any motivation to do the practice. So if you feel slightly like your mind is spinning, difficult to settle on the breath, what you want to do is try to make your out-breaths twice as long as you're in. So if you count to three on your in-breath, try to count to six on your out-breath. And what you're doing is in engaging your parasympathetic, you're sending a message to limbic structures, the right amygdala, to soothe to relax. But if you're feeling very tired, lethargic, a lack of any energy, then put all the emphasis on the in-breath. Make the inhalation feel big. And don't put any attention to the right, to the exhalation, or allow the in-breath just to be fuller and longer than the exhalation. 
So let's just sit here for a while and practice using both. You also will find that there's some studies that show that if you breathe, if you hold a finger over your right nostril and breathe into your left, that that will soothe. And if you breathe in through the right nostril, that that actually slightly activates the sympathetic. If you want to soothe yourself by counting breaths, you count down. So you count 10, 9, 8 with each breath. But if you want to slightly mobilize yourself, energize yourself, you count up to 10. So let's just spend some time practicing using awareness of the breath to adjust the settings of the nervous system.
If you're really tired, find yourself slightly dozing off. When you breathe in, you can open up your right eye. And then as you breathe out, close it. If you find your mind wandering away from the breath, that's okay. Each time you catch yourself lost in a thought, there's nothing wrong. Just relax yourself back into awareness of yourself breathing. Now let's move attention to the energy moving in the body. If you can find the sense of energy moving up in your body, filling up your chest with the inhalation, that upward movement of energy is of course enlivening. But it, assumingly it doesn't tighten the muscles in your abdomen which is a state of stress. So to mobilize, to stay alert, to stay present, it's a feeling of, in the in-breath, energy flowing up from your abdomen to fill the, expand the 
vagal nerves in your chest. Breathing in, expanding the chest, activating the sympathetic branch in a skillful way. You feel with the breath, you're not just filling your chest, but also slightly even lifting your head, your shoulders. On the other hand, an emphasis on the energy moving back down, fluidly moving down, deactivates. And to maintain homeostasis, we try for both. We feel this sense of movement up from the abdomen to the chest to the throat and the in-breath. And then with the out-breath, there's a sense of flower closing up, our head relaxing a little bit down, our chest contracting a little bit, and all the tension in the, the, the sternum and the abdomen being released. So that fluid movement of energy moving up and down. Homeostasis, you try to make the length of the in-breath and the out-breath is equally as long. So if you count to four on the in-breath and feel the body expanding and opening up like you're an upward-facing dog, and then the release, the slight wilting, count to four on the out-breath. To see if you can use the energy of the breath moving up and down the body to attain a state where you're balancing alertness with a state of ease. You do that by making the breath feel slightly more pronounced in your body. You breathe in really filling the chest with it. When you breathe out, slightly exaggerating the release in the front of the body.
So lastly, what I invite you now to do is to bring to mind a upcoming interaction with someone that either activates a sense of concern, anxiety, or a situation where you very often shut down, where you feel you get tongue-tied, can't speak, you feel overwhelmed. <clears throat> Try to, in your mind, put yourself in that situation where you visualize as accurately as you can, if you can visualize in your mind, what it would be like to be in this interaction with somebody that activates stress, or that a situation where you feel overwhelmed and where ability to speak and act just feels utterly beyond your reach. And see if you can, while you have this image in mind, discern first what your breath is like as the breath, the rhythm shifted. Are you now more an in inhalation or exhalation? If you feel anxious, then practice lengthening the out breath. If you feel overwhelmed, practice energizing mobilizing, focus on breathing in. And now let's use energy in the body to maintain a skillful state in our nervous system. So while you hold the stressful or overwhelming image in your mind, practice counting to four while you breathe in and in the in-breath Fill up your chest, expand it, 
slightly pulling back the shoulders, tilting the head even further up. Imagine it, the in-breath being this filling up the top part of the body with vitality. And then count to four as you breathe out and feel the head releasing the chest muscles and especially the abdominal muscles softening as you breathe in the abdomen expands pulling in the air and then shifts it to the chest as you breathe out everything in the front of the body softens brings us use this breath to practice being with a triggering thought or image moment I'm going to ring the symbols and when you hear the sound very very slowly let go of any image that remains and while you maintain awareness on your breath slowly open your eyes look at the ground in front of you and integrate sight into your awareness in such a way that it doesn't dominate so that you can bring awareness of your breath with you into the rest of this evening. It's very possible to have ongoing awareness, checking in with your breath, checking in with whether your stomach is tight or released your chest is open or collapsed. And just on an ongoing basis, we can keep ourselves in a far more conducive state of being. 